Welcome to the Unscripted Authentic Leadership Podcast, a podcast we are seeking to lead change while also seeking to understand. We are also here to provide a platform for leaders to come together to unite, develop, and empower other leaders in the areas of business, family, faith, and community. I am your host, Lafayette Lang, joined by my co-host, John LeBron, and today we are joined by our special guest, Dr. Lloyd C. Williams. Those of you that will watch this and even listen to this, put those hands together and clap for Dr. Williams. Put those clap emojis <laughs> in the comments section. He is our special guest today as we discuss a, a special pertinent topic, especially May being Mental Awareness Month. Today, we are going to talk about overcoming depression. Before we get into the topic and we introduce Dr. Williams, he tells us a little bit more about himself. We want to say thank you to all of our followers there that are a part of our YouTube channel that you see on the bottom of your screen that have subscribed to our YouTube channel, Unscripted Authentic Leadership. Are those of you that are part of our various social media platform pages from Facebook, Unscripted Authentic Leadership, our Instagram handle there at Unscripted Leadership. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Unscripted Authentic Leadership. And those of you that are not a part of our watch family, but you're part of our listening family, you can stream our platform, our podcast on any major um, podcast platform from Apple to Spotify to Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and so much more. And those of you that are interested in connecting with us and even being a guest on our show, you can check us out on our website, unscripted-leadership.com. As I said today, we are joined by our special guest, Dr. Lloyd C. Williams. A little bit about Dr. Williams. He is an organizational psychological consultant who focuses on the issues of healing the rift between people and systems with particular focus on the integration and collaboration of organizational and clinical psychological solutions for people and system issues. At this time, I'm going to hand it over to Dr. Williams to tell us a little bit more about himself, where he's from and what he does at this time. Dr. Williams. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Originally, I'm from Alabama. I grew up in Tuskegee Institute, where my father was dean of the School of Veterinary Medicine for 25 years. Um, I am an organizational psychologist, a clinical psychological consultant, a professor and author um, in a variety of venues. I have a PhD in clinical psychology with an emphasis in depth psychology. I have a PhD in organizational psychology with an underlying interest in ethics and a PhD in theology, personality, and culture. Um, I've written seven books and working on an eighth book now. And uh, I'm the chief academic officer at Transcontinental University, senior consultant at roostech.com, uh, and a consultant for Dr. Lloyd C. Williams Consultants. Amazing. Those of you that will watch and listen to this, as you've just heard, Dr. Williams is more than qualified to talk on this amazing topic of overcoming depression. We want to get right into the topic. I think I want to start with laying the foundation, Dr. Williams, of what is depression? Because I think we all have our various definitions when we hear this word or we get a picture in our mind on what that is. Can you just try, kind of give our audience uh, a foundational principle or a foundational definition rather of what depression really is before we get into the topic of how we can overcome it and deal with it. What is depression? Uh, depression is basically the inability of an individual to maintain pleasure and joy and a sense of loss in their lives hmm. where they begin to uh, decompensate and go downhill 
based on those things that are occurring for them. Um, and it takes on, from a clinical perspective, multiple diagnostic labeling. So a person can either have a disruptive mood deregulation disorder, or they can have a major depressive disorder, or they can have um, within that behavioral theories around depression, and they can have uh, persistent depressive disorder, which is called dysthymia, um, and they can have postpartum depression. And all of them are different perspectives in terms of how people address changes in their lives that don't make a lot of sense for them, and it happens easily. For most persons, depression sort of begins around the, the age of 20 and exists in males in many ways more than females. Um, but people find themselves having significant challenges around preoccupation and a sense of being grossly out of sort. Uh, they don't feel like they're in control of themselves. They feel sad, they feel blue, they feel a loss of pleasure in things such as sex. Um, they don't sense that things are going well for them. Uh, from a diagnostic perspective, there's certain criteria that have to exist. So for example, a person can have a disruptive mood dysregulation and it has to occur for them um, most days for a period of 12 months. And in that particular disorder, they have temper outbursts. Um, they become really frustrated very easily uh, and it's exhibited over a long period of time. A person can have a major depressive disorder, um, which is significantly more disruptive, but it happens every day for a period of at least two weeks with at least one of the symptoms being a depressed mood and they have up to five different symptoms that can exist for them. So they can have fatigue, loss of energy, feeling of weightlessness or excessive guilt, diminished ability to think or concentrate, recurrent thoughts of death or recurrent suicidal ideation or suicidal attempts. So there are lots of different things that can drive someone to feel depressed. Um, but you know, as I think about it, We've just gone through a year of COVID. Yeah, that's good. And in, in that year of COVID, a lot of persons have become depressed, mm -hmm. uh, where they feel like they don't have control over their lives. They feel out of control, out of sort, very sad, very blue. And I guess for me, I find that a lot of that is based on an underlying issue that most people never really address regardless to the issue of depression or other things in their lives. And that is most persons are externally driven. And so what I mean by that, they focus on what's outside of them and what other people say about them and how other people look at them and how other people value them. And the challenge with that is you never know who you are. Wow. Because you're always trying to live up to the perspectives of others. Yeah rather than living up to your own. So persons are less likely to become depressed if they're internally driven. Mm. Their own beliefs, their own values guide who they are, what they do, what they say. So when you look at persons from COVID, they have valued themselves based on their careers, based on their jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, they valued themselves on being an amazing provider for their family. 
But it's about the external. It's not about who they are. It's about what they do. And so they become depressed because how they evaluate themselves and what they do no longer works. Um, it's changed. Uh, there's not the same degree of interaction between people. They're not in the office. They're not there making uh, connections to people on a daily basis. They're at home. They're on Zoom. Sure. They're on the phone. And they don't feel like they have the level of connection that they used to have with others. Uh, they feel sad and, and out of sorts because they can't provide for their children the way they used to. They can't do the things for their wives the way they used to. Uh, they may find themselves becoming uncomfortable in the workplace, I mean, at home, because the sexual intimacy, the emotional intimacy, the affectional intimacy that they used to enjoy is no longer there at the level that they once experienced. Um, and it changes. So let's say you're, you're Asian. Asians don't historically express their depression in terms of emotional, psychological perspectives. They express it in terms of somatic perspectives. They have problems in their body, uh, stomach aches, different types of pain. Um, men sometimes express depression through anger. Uh, they're just not who they used to be, and they get really excited and upset very easily. Women may express it in the traditional way of uh, being sad, being, being blue, having a sense of loss, feeling out of control. Children uh, who historically are not talked about as having depressed mood begin to have a level of sadness because they can't connect with their friends that they always had, as they always had. They're not in the classroom as they used to be. So all of them have specific challenges um, that begin to create real changes for them. But what's really going on is a sense of significant distress and a sense of impaired functioning. And so those are the types of challenges that exist around depression. That's that's so good because as you said, that was kind of the direction I believe that we wanted to go in. Yeah. Dealing with this whole pandemic situation because of the isolation element. Mm -hmm. We talked about people that are externally driven and now you've come to the place to where you have to find out who you are and it's kind of forced us to that place. We didn't have a choice because we're inside, we're indoors, everything's locked down, everything's locked down. Mm -hmm. and so what can we take positively from that time of isolation instead of using it for a negative thing? How can we turn that into, okay, this is the time that I have to evaluate with myself, internalize, self-assess. How can we manage that to better ourselves instead of using it to drive us to a dark place? Probably the, the best thing is to recognize that you're in control of your own destiny. Hmm. And you don't have to rely on others to, to dictate who you are and what you do. Okay. So let, let's see if I can talk about that in a different way. Sure. Um, my eighth book that I'm writing is about enmeshment theory. And it's about the challenges that people have when they rely on everything outside of themselves rather than who they are. Mm. So one of the things that happens around depression is people begin to experience fear, blame, and shame. The shame is because I'm not the image that I used to be. The blame is because I'm not doing what I knew needed to do. And the fear is I don't know whether I can get back to where I was. Uh, so persons begin to decompensate and go downhill. 
And that's the first level of enmeshment, which is around that fear, blame, and shame. The second level of enmeshment, is, however, is around isolation, alienation, and a sense of chaos. Mm -hmm. And so what's happening for a lot of persons over the past year has been the isolation and feeling alienated from others, feeling alienated from family, feeling alienated from friends, and they experience their world as a chaotic world. And they don't know what to do with that world. So the, the, the first thing is to look at um, who am I? What drives and makes me the person that I am? What do I value? What do I believe in? What's important to me? My father used to say, if the whole world falls down around you, you still have to have you. And that's the challenge from depression. The whole world is falling down around them and people don't have themselves. And so they, they experience that sense of loss. Now, clinically, if you have major depression, people say you have what's called a chemical imbalance and that that chemical imbalance has to be repaired. And people talk about varying types of medication like Cymbalta and other things like that to help you. Or they take Prozac wellbutrin, other types of medication that, that lift them and put them on an even keel so they can begin to think differently, therefore to act differently. Um, so the first thing that I would suggest to a person is they pay attention to who they are. The second thing is to look at what, what exists in their life in a realistic way. No job ultimately dictates who you are. Yeah. You know, but people pay so much attention to the job, or they pay so much attention to their friends, or they pay so much attention to things that they have, the material things. And all of a sudden that goes away and they don't see a sense or an anchor of anything about themselves. So the, the goal is to create a new anchor. The goal is to create an anchor that's based on who you are, what you value, what you believe, and how you make a choice about what you want to do in the world rather than feeling that the world has done it for you. So you have to be in charge of you rather than let the world be in charge of you. This, the second thing is to look realistically at where challenges exist. So men have to pay attention to what has society said to them about what they're supposed to be versus what they themselves believe they're supposed to be. Sometimes men have grown up to be competitive. Men have grown up to be the provider. Men have grown up to be strong. Men have grown up to not cry. Men have grown to not show weakness. All of those things are detriments for men being able to survive in a world of depression. Mm. They have to look at the fact that I can be both strong and weak. They can look at the fact I can be provider and sometimes I need assistance. Sure. They, look at, they can look at the fact that, yes, I get angry, but I can also be sad, I can cry. Um, so men have to recognize their humanness rather than their sense of superhumanness because we're not superhuman, but we were raised to be superhuman. Right, right. So yeah. that, that becomes really different. Women have to look at learning to see themselves as competent and capable as they are rather than believing they have to have a man do it or they have to have parents do it or they have to have friends do it. They've got to find it within themselves. 
Children have to look at their parents and children have to look at themselves. Children are often driven by what their peers say rather than who they are. Um, so a child has to discover where they are themselves and what about their peers do they like and need versus what about themselves do they want to grow and shift and make, make new changes for themselves. Does that answer what you're asking? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What's that? I said I have I have a lot more questions, but I will let you ask a few. Yeah, I got a couple sitting here. I have to pick really some. Um, <laughs> I have to pick one to keep it within the time frame. So you had mentioned, I wrote this down. Um, if you see me looking down, I'm just taking a lot of notes. Mm -hmm. um, so you mentioned the meds get you feeling differently. Therefore, you can act differently. And then ideally, I would think that would start you acting in the appropriate ways to move out of that, I would get assume to, to back to the, I'm in control of my destiny, get out of my depressive state type of thing. Do you find that when people are diagnosed, okay, you have this type of depression, here's some medications to help you get to that, that level spot where you can now, um, I think you said, think differently, therefore act differently, should that be coupled with some type of counseling or coaching? Otherwise, I would think in my head, if the person fell down the depressive, like sort of into this depressive state, yes, the medication could help them um, feel better moment for a while, but without the proper maybe counseling um, therapy, what I don't know the right words they could potentially fall back down there or just stay on medication for a very way longer time than they would need. Right. Shouldn't it be used more as an aid rather than like a vitamin <laughs> like that you just keep using forever. You know you're what actually, I mean? You're, you're actually sharing the age old issue that currently has existed for the past 25 years. Okay. And the issue is can mental health be treated with medication alone? Or can mental health be treated with talk therapy alone? Or is there some combination of the two? Yeah. Now, I'm of the school of thought that says talk therapy is more important than medication. I believe if I can get someone to understand what the dynamics are that are going on within them, that are historical as well as current, that they can learn how to shift who they are based on what's inside of them rather than absolutely having to have a medication. Now, there are some individuals in terms of major depressive disorders who actually need the medication to, to create an even keel for them mm -hmm. to be able to address issues. However, I'm not one who believes that people need to be on medication forever. I am one who believes that they need to be in the therapeutic process with a, with a clinician, either a clinical psychologist, an organizational psychologist in terms of executive coaching, uh, a marriage and family therapist, a licensed clinical social worker, uh, an LPC licensed professional counselor to address those types of issues that exist for them. And I don't necessarily believe that medication is, is the end all to everything. Um, I've, been, I probably, I've been of that thought for I, a long time. I probably would get in trouble if I said, you know, insurance companies look at the best way to treat and at the same time make a profit and mm -hmm. reduce their cost. 
That's good. And so the reality is, if an insurance company can treat you by medication, that's cheaper for them than treating you by psychotherapy. Sure. Mm. So they would prefer for somebody to be treated by the medication rather than by the talk therapy or some combination of the two, because then the insurance company has to pay for both the therapy as well as the medication. Well, the insurance company doesn't like to do that. They like to pay for one or the other. But the medication may not actually be treating them. It just may be a temporary treatment. Absolutely. And it, it could be a masking effect or it yeah. could be an actual helping effect. And okay. it, it depends on the individual and their psychological makeup and what they've experienced in their lives. Um, so I'm not one who is a big fan of medication if I can do as much as possible in a psychotherapeutic venue rather Love than it. with the medication itself. Hmm. Sure. Okay. Do you mind if I throw one more out there, Lafayette? Yeah, I, got, I, got, I got what I have to go ahead. <laughs> All right. And then, okay, you had mentioned that uh, males is higher than females, which, okay. Um, I, I never thought about it either way. It doesn't surprise me, though. Do you think that would have anything to do, and this is way out in left field a little bit, that there's there's been this sort of epidemic of so many of males not having proper fatherhood for not saying dads aren't some some have dads around, but we've all had friends who either have have not had a father, or they just were kind of uh, uh, emotionally absent. Would that ha have anything to do with the fact that male men have so much higher rates of depression that they just don't understand how to properly act? Because you mentioned that they don't understand how to be in control of they're not in control of certain ways, therefore. They get I'm mad easy or something. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure I would make it that explicit. Sure. By that, I mean, there are many who get depressed because of a lack of a father. Mm. There's, some, there's some who get depressed because of how they were treated by fathers. Mm -hmm. um, but they're also impacted by how they're treated by mothers mm. and how they're treated by society. Oh, so... So it's not that easy then. <laughs> no, it, it, it's not easy, but it's also important not to exclude any of those issues. Yeah. So what the psychologist usually has to do is to, as a part of the history taking with the client, the first two or three sessions, they want to try and understand as much about the client's background as they possibly can. Now, having said that, there are differences. I'm a psychodynamic therapist. Mm -hmm. Some persons are cognitive behavioral therapists. So a cognitive behavioral therapist is going to look at what needs to be done today and how do I change you so that you can function more effectively in society today. Mm. Psychodynamic therapist says, well, that's important. However, your history and how you grew up and where you grew up is also important. And so one has to understand the historical makeup of the individual and how that's impacting the current makeup of the individual and what needs to be shifted so that it doesn't repeat itself and changes and creates a different future relationship about who the person is. Mm -hmm. So it changes significantly. Mm -hmm. um, I think there are challenges of fathers mm -hmm. um, and challenges of mothers, but we also have to recognize most fathers and mothers didn't have roadmaps about how to be. So they make their own mistakes as they go up mm -hmm. and it impacts the child. So let's say there's a mother who's young and she had a child out of wedlock 
and now she's raising that child, and then all of a sudden, she still wants to go out and party. But she can't afford a babysitter, so sometimes she leaves the children at home by themselves. But our society says that's wrong, and society wants to punish the woman. But the other side of the impact is the child sometimes feels left alone, isolated, unable to know what, what is supposed to happen, what didn't occur, what is something wrong with them for the fact that their mother wasn't around? All those things feed into a sense of loss, mm -hmm. uh, a sense of aloneness, a sense of isolation. So some people are depressed most of their lives um, and just don't get help for that. They do different things. People self-medicate. So you have lots of alcoholism. Well, a lot of the alcoholism is a way to self-medicate around the depression. Um, you have persons who do drugs, same issue. Um, or if they've had any significant emotional event that has created pain or, or a sense of loss or stress or trauma, they may self-medicate. So you have comorbid issues that exist for the individual, the actual clinical diagnosis and the drug or alcohol issue that's, that's built on top of that. So you have to work with both of those issues in order to create significant change for the individual. Now, I don't know if you intended to do this, but we're talking about it from an individual perspective. Sure. It also happens in a corporate perspective. This is the org psych part of me. Yeah. Um, let's say you work for a company and the company does what's called the almighty fit. Everybody has to look the same, act the same, be the same, think the same, uh -huh. suck, smell the same, walk the same, talk the same. Mm -hmm. right? And you come in and you're not that way. Yes. You become isolated. You become yeah. attacked. You become the, the enemy. You become the person who is wrong. And in that process, there's also organizational depression. And that depression is driven by how companies tend to operate as well as the histories that you bring to the organization as an employee. If you have unresolved conflicts, unresolved pain, unresolved trauma, that sense of depression may be with you within the company. Depending upon who your supervisor or boss is and how they treat you, how they say things to you, how they help you be successful can impact whether or not there's a sense of organizational depression, organizational anxiety that, that impacts your ability to, to be you, especially if you grew up and you're supposed to value who you are based by what you do, yet what you're experiencing in the organization is a lack of success. And so those things create levels of organizational depression. So a lot of what I end up doing in companies, I'm asked to be an executive coach, I'm asked to look at organizational change, I'm asked to look at organizational restructure, policies, procedures, and practices, human resource policies. And in all of that, often I find depression. Often I find anxiety. We need to understand that anxiety is the other side of the coin of depression. Okay. Usually a person is depressed and they're also anxious. So they have both. So okay. often a person gets diagnosed with major depressive disorder or persistent depressive, depressive disorder, dysthymia, as well as generalized anxiety disorder. Um, so they have both of those things. And so from a medical perspective, the depression, they're looking at serotonin. 
and dopamine and how to, to increase those things within the body so that a person feels better about who they are, okay? But it doesn't mean that it's always helpful. So one has to look at how do you help somebody work through who they are to become more of who they want to be? Mm. And they come from an internal perspective rather than an external one. And so we do that all the time, you know? Um, and there, there are just lots of different ways to do that. Um, so we do that in executive coaching. We do that in clinical counseling. We do that in organizational change and restructure efforts. We sometimes look at some of those issues from training and development processes. Um, we look at it sometimes in an educational process. For example, Transcontinental University has just created a master's program in inclusive leadership. And it's different. It's the only program in its type of its time of its type in the country. And it's designed to look strategically at how does an individual truly honor and own who they are as well as honor and own who everybody else is. So that they look at how to build collaborative modeling processes rather than competitive modeling processes. Because competition also breeds depression. If you were a young child and everybody around you competes and you're at a basketball game and the game, everybody picks who's going to be on their team and you get left off the team. You're sitting on the sideline. That can be the beginning of depression because you feel like you're not valued. You're not cared about. You're not wanted. So you feel that isolation, that sense of loss that can occur at a very young age. Girls experience it at parties. You go to a party. She's not the girl picked to dance. You know, you go to, uh, as you get older, basketball teams, sporting events, the band, all these other types of things where you get left out and feel alone. Those things begin to create, create levels of depression for you in terms of the experiences that you have. It happens in the workplace. Mm -hmm. you know, Lafayette is a black gentleman. So Lafayette has to look realistically at, can he be fully himself when he goes to work for somebody? You, <laughs> you, and, you, you're talking about, yeah, I was going to Lafayette may say, oh, Lord, no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let's say John is, a, is an openly gay man. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you are. Don't, don't tell me if you are. But let's say John is an openly gay man and he goes to work in a company that's run by Mormons. Mm -hmm. He is likely to have hell on wheels. Mm -hmm. Or he is working with a company and it's mostly women. Mm -hmm. And they see him as a good looking man, but he doesn't want to date any of them. Hmm. Oh, the pressure that they put on him becomes extreme. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he begins to feel totally isolated in the workplace. He doesn't feel like they value what he does. They just feel like they value what he looks like. What's he going to do? How is he going to address those challenges? So what begins to occur is what's called the theory of learned helplessness. And he doesn't feel like that he has any out. He's helpless. And there's no way out and there's no one to help him. That begins to breed a behavioral theory of depression. So we have depression in our society as a significant challenge. And it gets worse and worse each and every year. And this past year has created so much. Mm -hmm. 
So people in my profession end up getting more clients and fewer clients because of COVID, you know, and if they still have their insurance, then they have their insurance paid for, pay for it. Otherwise, you have to look at how they're going to do it on their own. Sometimes they can't do it and they become worse mm. because they feel isolated, unable to do, not making the resources that they used to. They can't take care of themselves. They can't take care of their, take care of their, their family. And they're just totally stressed and traumatized. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's quite the rabbit hole. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Williams, I wanted to go back to the point about the talk therapy. Yes. Uh, because I wanted to address um, this whole concept about the multi-generational trauma. Um, as a black man, what I've seen in our culture a lot of times is this whole thought around what happens in this house stays in this house. And from that, it has created the stigma of especially as black men or just black people as in general, that we feel that if we talk, we look weak or we don't believe in therapists or if we see someone else in our culture that goes to a therapist or admits that they need therapy or they're in a mental state to where they are dealing with struggle, then they are frowned down upon. And I'm only speaking from my culture. And that's just something as a black man that I've always wondered. I'm so glad that we have this platform to have this. So, so let's talk about that. Yeah. Multi-generational trauma for black people is 400 years old. And it's continued generation by generation by generation by generation. Yeah. It was initially created because of slavery. Mm -hmm. And by that, what I mean is black persons, males, females, children had to learn to survive, not live. Yeah. And so the, the challenge in slavery was uh, a disavowed dis dis dismissal of black males and an elevation of black females within the slave tradition. So black folks became what's called a, a matriarchal society mm -hmm. that it was, it was driven by the women. Right. Okay. The women maintained the family, so forth and so on. In the 1950s, when um, America decided it was going to do AFDC, Aid for Families with Dependent Children. Black women could get monies to take care of their children only if the man was not in the household. Mm -hmm. So they took the black male out of the household and it continued the trauma. Black young male children keep looking around and they didn't see dad. They just saw mom and grandma. And so they began to have a sense that there was nothing valuable about who they are. Multi-generational trauma and multi-generational depression has existed in black culture for eons. You go to Asian culture, let's say you came from a traditional Chinese, Japanese, Korean family, and their historical values and perspectives about how you're supposed to behave as a Korean child, but you came to America. And all of a sudden you have to balance Western culture with your own culture. And that often has created depression because the child wants to act in a certain way, but knows that's not going to be acceptable within the family. So there are challenges with that. Um, if you come from an immigrant family or you come from a Muslim family, there are differences in how you must behave versus how you behave in a Western society. So multi-generational trauma has existed in all cultures. The challenge is that multi-generational trauma 
stops the ability to live and focuses only on the ability to, to survive. Hmm. So when you look at black young men, black children today, multi-generational trauma continues to impact them in a significant way. And it, it creates depression, it creates anxiety, it creates a variety of other types of dysfunctional issues. We're only talking about depression here. Sure. So, so they are challenged to, to try and figure out where is joy? Where is beauty? Where is a sense of value? Where do I belong? How do I say I am a man, I am a boy? How do I say I'm a girl who doesn't have to manipulate to be who I am? Mm. If you think about in black families, we always have historically heard, oh, Uncle Johnny's a little tetch. Don't worry about him. Mm -hmm. You know, it, Johnny had a mental health issue. But the family didn't look at that. The, they would always say, go pray about it. Mm. So you'd have to go to the black church. And sometimes the black pastors were not trained to address mental dysfunctional issues. Wow. Or you come from a rural family and you're white. They don't look at that issue either. Um, so mental health historically was designed for white folks, even though there are significant challenges to all other races and ethnicities. Mm. For example, in America, there are these groups that, that worship snakes and they handle snakes. And it's considered by many in America to be a sickness. Whereas in India, it's considered to be sacred. Mm. You know, so there are different ways in which people look at the things that exist in their lives and how they're going to address it. Um, Multi-generational trauma continues to be a major issue within our society, um, especially for persons of color. Um, so we have to look at how we're going to address that and create change. Now, I don't know if you wanted me to go down this path, but let's keep going. Part of the multi-generational trauma in cultures is based on the culture not having a sense of who they are. Mm. So there is what I call psychological invisibility. And that is that the individual is invisible to himself because he's trying to live up to a stereotype that was created by somebody else. Wow. wow. So the, and that's what my book is about. And so the, the, the challenge is if society has said you're supposed to be like this, be like Mike, be like Johnny, mm -hmm. but you don't look like Johnny, you don't look like Mike, Mike, you don't think like that, but that's what you're supposed to emulate, you lose a sense of you. And you're always trying to live up to the stereotype that somebody else has, and you never have a sense of who you are. That creates a depressive state. So you're in that depressive state until you begin to say, I don't have to live up to that stereotype. Mm -hmm. I can be me. I can figure out who I am. Okay? If you have young gay persons who are trying to come out, their entire historical perspective about being who they are is initially living two lives. A life that everybody thinks they know and a life that they, they are trying to understand about themselves. And only when they get to the point that they can be comfortable and have enough ego strength to say, I am who I am, can they come out and begin to shift the paradigms that they've lived with all their lives? Now, 
The church has often been an anathema to that. Families have often been an anathema to that because families say, oh my God, what did you do? What did I do? I didn't create this child. How do I address that? All those types of things begin to occur. So in terms of the topic that we're talking about, depression is an unbelievable challenge for all of us. And we have to look at how do we overcome that by focusing on ourselves through talk therapy, through medication, through combinations of the two, through groups of persons where we work through and talk through the challenges that we have with one another, um, and different types of things. Sometimes it's about exercise. People are able to break the depression cycle by exercise, swimming a mile a day, running, doing exercise at the gym where they keep themselves feeling better about who they are. All those things are steps that persons have taken to try and address depression. Um, and it, it's, it's just a really, really, really difficult challenge that people have to try and understand who they are. Um, at the worst part of it, if one can't handle their depression, suicide becomes a challenge. Um, and so psychologists have to look at a suicide assessment from individuals to try and determine what's really going on so they can prevent some of those things that exist. Um, for example, 60 to 80% of the people who commit suicide, it's not their first attempt. Hmm. They've tried it multiple times. Uh. Um, initially, they tried it as a sign of help. Help me. And when that didn't work, that sense of hopelessness and helplessness takes over, and they perhaps succeed. So mm -hmm. we have to look at all the things that exist around depressive and mood disorders that make our lives more difficult, more, more, more difficult to understand and participate in. And it, as you talk about it from a leadership perspective, Organizations change effectively because they're able to balance cognition and emotion. If you don't pay attention to the emotion of your people, you lose them. So you have to be able to not only understand what's going on cognitively, but what's going on emotionally and how do you balance the two. The leader's job is about empowering. The manager's job is about completing the task. So in doing so, the manager has to realistically look at what do I understand about my people that I'm asking to do things. Often they don't do that. The leaders get uncomfortable with what the managers are not doing and they step down to a management role and they lose their leadership process where they're supposed to empower people, help people be creative, bring out the best of each and every person to provide success for themselves and success for the organization. So we struggle with that type of issue. In today's marketplace, there's concern about diversity, inclusion, equity, equality, and belonging. And the real issue there is belonging. Mm -hmm. And the challenge becomes, in businesses, do we create a space for people to belong? Or, we create, or do we create a space for people only to perform? Mm. What's important? What do we value? In families... Do we create a space for individuation, for the person to be who they are and allow them to be different from the family yet still valued and loved mm. 
mm-hmm. by the family. You have gay kids who are thrown out all the time, each and every day by their parents because they're not what the parents believe. You have black kids who don't have parents saying, you need to be home. Mm-hmm. You need to do your homework. No, you don't need to be on the street corner. Sure. No, you don't need to do this, that, or the other. We have black kids who are raising themselves right. and being raised by other kids. And so the ability to be successful, to see themselves as whole and complete is often stifled by the lack of defective parenting and depression begins to set in. So in all of these situations, whether it's the company, whether it's the family, whether it's the community, whether it's the school, the same types of issues arise for children and for adults. Men, women, boys and girls all have the challenge of depressive situations. And it's our job as as professionals to help them work through that, see that, understand that and move beyond that. And that's sometimes very difficult. Absolutely. John, did you have any more questions for Dr. Williams? You know, you had mentioned, uh, I saw this quote once from Will Smith. He said that a parent's job is to be like a gardener with their kids and it's to create the environment for them to grow and blossom into what they're meant to be, essentially what they're designed to be, not for you to tell them what they should do. And you had mentioned children who don't have zero direction as far as, you know, don't you never told one to be home, not to do your homework. Would you find it? Um, I would almost be rather be t- overly told what to do than not. But on the flip side, I've seen the opposite too, where I've seen like dads physically, like physically um, abrasive with their children because over like, a, you know, my kid, my son plays lacrosse and that's not, it's a, it's an expensive sport to play, put it that way. So there's certain kinds of kids that traditionally play and I get that, but I've seen dads like, like physically harm their son for not performing properly on a lacrosse field when they're only eight. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? And I think to myself, the, like my son and plays. The, and the challenge, that, the challenge that you're describing, unfortunately, is a parent living out their dreams through their child. Yeah. And if the child doesn't perform the way the parent believes they would have performed, the child is chastised. Mm-hmm. And it's unfortunate, uh, but it happens. Because maybe so that kid is not an athlete. Can, he could it, be an amazing right. engineer one day. And it I could mean, be the role of it could be the role of the coach. Yeah. Say to the parent, "You need to back off." And here's why: This is the harm you're doing to your child. Your mm-hmm. child came out here bright and light and having fun and laughing, and now your child is sad, has his head down all the time because he feels like he's going to disappoint his dad. And it makes him sad because he can't play like everybody else plays. So he gets more and more depressed. You need to back off and let your child be a child. Mm-hmm. And it's sometimes hard for parents to hear that. And there have been situations where parents have gotten into major fights mm-hmm. on the field over what their children are doing and other parents and what they say. Um, it's really interesting if you go to some children's sports events and watch the parents and you just shake seems, your head. It seems so silly. Yeah. But it's a real thing. There's states that thing. now have laws against touching officials because so many right. parents have physically um, harmed officials because they. Absolutely correct. 
Um, they get the yeah. felony. <laughs> it's been that bad. But anyways, I, I, I would almost rather be on the side of the dad who won't leave me alone than never being told. But at the same time, I've seen it happen both ways. It's very interesting. I think Fuck what we're looking for is, to par is for parents to understand that raising a child is a process of creating balance. Mm -hmm. It's not just one way or the other. It's a combination that needs to occur where we're fluid rather than static. Where we assess who the child is and we're fluid with helping that child develop as he needs to be rather than developing as we want him to be. We need to see the child and help honor the child for who the child is and help instill in the child the values, the beliefs that make him a good human being. Mm -hmm. And then give him his wings and let him fly, always knowing that should he fail, he can always come home. Mm -hmm. and, sure. and you too. And too often that's not the case. Mm. Absolutely. Dr. Williams, where can our unscripted audience connect with you, uh, whether that be on social media or where can they buy some of your products? I know you had mentioned that you have written eight books. So my books they can get at Amazon. Okay. And then you just have to put in Dr. Lloyd C. Williams and the, the books will come up. Um, there are a number of ways in which they can get me through uh, email at orgdoctor at ittl.org, which is O-R-G-D-O-C-T-O-R at I-T-T-L dot O-R-G. Or they can get me at doc, D-O-C, at roostech.com, R-O-O-S-T-E-C-H.com. You know, I don't remember my email at Transcontinental. Okay. But um, if you get it from Dr. Sun, Dr. Sun can give you a way to get in touch with me as well. Sure. Uh, let's see. I'll throw this out there, too. If there's anybody listening and they feel like they need to talk to somebody, just reach out. We are happy if you missed an email or something. We are happy to and my say. Phone, and my phone number is 602-300-1180. You can call. There you go. There wow. you go. That's way better than anything I was about to give you. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Williams, again, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a thought-provoking, incredible conversation. Yes. Um, You're quite so, welcome. Thank you. Uh, so much information wisdom that you gave. And I believe um, people are going to be encouraged and blessed by this and somebody is going to uh, find the strength they need to continue on and make it through their journey. Um, as always, those of you that will watch and listen to this, uh, continue to subscribe to our YouTube channel there, Unscripted Authentic Leadership. Follow us on our various social media platforms. Stream the podcast. Leave us a review. Leave us a thumbs up. Follow Dr. Williams on his um, the Transcontinental University. Connect with him. He's even given his number where you can reach out, connect with him. You can connect with us via our website, unscripted-leadership.com. We thank you. We pray that you be the leader that God has called you to be. As always, we're here to build bridges and not walls. Bridges to connect and walls divide. Until next time, God bless you. Take care. Thank you.